Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Testa, who's an assistant professor at the Chesapeake Biological Laboratory, which itself is a part of the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. And as you might have guessed, we'll be talking about the Chesapeake Bay, its ecological significance, and specifically, we'll be talking about hypoxia, or low oxygen conditions in the bay. It was a great chat, so with no further ado, let's get straight to it. Dr. Testa, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so we're talking about uh, hypoxia in Chesapeake Bay, and I guess a good first place to start would be just asking, what is hypoxia, and uh, why is it something that we worry about? Yeah, so hypoxia is a term that... Um, the sort of aquatic environmental science community kind of borrowed from the medical community and it um, broadly represents a condition of low oxygen conditions in the water and what we mean by low can vary um, depending on um, what the question of interest is but in general um, we we think of these low concentrations as being to a point where they're you know, primarily negatively affecting some of the larger organisms um, in estuaries or lakes or the open ocean, um, uh, but also a host of other organisms, you know, including those that uh, live in the mud and um, also a, a series of biogeochemical reactions that are oxygen sensitive. And um, in most cases, um, the effects of low oxygen on those biogeochemical processes, which you can sort of broadly define as kind of the linkages between what you know, bacteria are doing in relation to the chemical environment, um, how they sort of transform certain chemicals and making them more available um, in the water column and that sort of feeding back into the water itself. Okay, and, and before we get into those mechanisms, I'm just wondering, you know, what's, what's the basis for this? You know, what causes this? Is this the, solely the result of human activity or is this a natural phenomenon as well? Uh, it's it's both in some ways. Um, you can think of it simply as, you know, being a process that can uh, happen naturally in a number of systems. Um, but in general, the reason we're interested in it, and um, one of the reasons there's been a lot of scientific research uh, directed towards it, is that there's a number of conditions, um, including uh, things that humans do on watersheds, that result in sort of higher volumes of water that we would call hypoxia or just lower levels of oxygen in the water. Um, so it, it's sort of both. And from the human side, you know, what are some of the activities that, that would cause this sort of phenomenon to occur? So the primary sort of conceptual mechanism that, that we know that sort of causes hypoxic conditions or hypoxia is that, you know, on all the things that happen on the landscape with human activity, so sewage treatment plants, um, you know, power plants, um, what people do on their lawns, um, all of the agriculture, all of these things sort of increase the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that sort of leave the watershed and get into the coastal system. And in the coastal system, um, you have a number of different plants that are growing there, but in a lot of places, the the primary sort of plant are these microscopic algae we call phyto phytoplankton. And so phytoplankton, like all plants, you know, are kind of limited by the amount of nutrients available to them. So when you put more nutrients into these waters, it sort of relieves that limitation and you can have, 
you know, higher densities, um, longer blooms of these microscopic plants. And then ultimately those, those phytoplankton go somewhere. And oftentimes they just sink vertically and they go into deeper waters. And um, when, those, when bacteria and other microbes break down those dead phytoplankton cells, if you want to call them that, um, that process consumes oxygen. So the more nutrients we put in the coastal water, the more of these phytoplankton bloom events, not even events, but just the tendency for higher phytoplankton biomass. And then the more of it gets into deeper waters where there's more oxygen consumption. Okay, so you have this phenomenon in which, you know, say a farmer puts uh, nitrogen fertilizer onto his crops, and then that fertilizer, some percentage of it runs off and winds up in the watershed, um, hits the water, and then the process that you just described uh, with the phytoplankton occurs, and you wind up with these low oxygen conditions. Right. Okay, so... Uh, you know, moving on from that, in the Chesapeake Bay specifically, is this, you know, kind of more of a problem than it is in other areas or less? And what causes that? Well, there's, this is a problem kind of globally. Um, and as it turns out, you know, the parts of the world that tend to have higher human densities and higher nutrient inputs to the coastal zone tend to have more places, more water bodies that have this hypoxic problem. Um, so Chesapeake Bay is not necessarily unique among the estuaries of the world in having this problem. Um, the thing about Chesapeake Bay is it's particularly vulnerable to generating hypoxia for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that the circulation of Chesapeake Bay, kind of the general way the water works, um, sort of in a mean sense, sort of over the average, has sort of water flowing to the ocean and the surface, and it has sort of this return water that's flowing in the bottom water that's heading back towards land. And so if you think about this water that's heading back towards land, um, it's sort of going up, up, up Chesapeake Bay, this dead phytoplankton sort of raining down on it and oxygen's being consumed. And because it's in the bottom water, um, it's not getting new oxygen, say, from the atmosphere, and it's spending a lot of time sort of going back up Chesapeake Bay. So that circulation pattern um, really tends to create this isolated bottom water. Um, and also, the fact that this sign of circulation pattern is happening, um, any nutrients, right, so the nitrogen phosphorus that grows the algae also is released when it's broken down and oxygen is consumed. And so you get these nutrients that stimulate algal growth accumulating in the bottom water and then moving sort of back upstream. So the bay is really good at retaining um, the nutrients that it does get. So it's sort of that physical feature sort of makes the bay more vulnerable to having low oxygen, but it also retains the nutrients that can stimulate sort of additional or sustained low oxygen conditions. Okay. And before we get into the forecasting, I was hoping you could tell us just a little bit about the monitoring of all this stuff. You know, one thing I always wonder about is how these measurements are taken. Um, you know, is it constant sampling or is it periodic? You know, how does that work? Well, it's been evolving, but the primary way that the primary source of data that we use is this long-term monitoring program that's been in place in Chesapeake Bay uh, since the mid-1980s. It's kind of a partnership between the um, US EPA Chesapeake Bay program and the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. And so they've been doing this monitoring that involves um, a reasonable number of stations that sort of map all over Chesapeake Bay and its tributaries. Um, and they take sensors and they 
basically drop them, lower them into the water, and they're measuring measuring oxygen um, at at you know about every meter, every three feet in depth. Um, and so we get this string these profiles together in the estuary, and um, we know what the volumes and the depths are at different parts of Chesapeake Bay, and we can sort of put those two pieces of information together and generate an estimate of sort of how big that. Um, region of low oxygen water is. Okay, and, and uh, I, you think you mentioned it, but when did those sensors go in? So, um, just to be clear there, these are what we would call a discrete sample where the sensors lowered and brought back up, put back on the boat and go to the next station. And I only clarify that because there's also in more recent years um, buoys that have been put out that have sensors attached to them that are measuring oxygen all the time, um, year round and they make measurements in the range of every 15 minutes. But um, they started doing that in 1984, in the summer of 1984. And uh, what, what was the cause for initiating the program at that time? Well, there really was a growing appreciation at the time that Chesapeake Bay you know, had degraded. Um, you know, the submerged grasses, which are called SAV, you know, macrophytes that are growing at the bottom, had really sort of disappeared in large regions of Chesapeake Bay. This problem of hypoxia had really um, grown and been recognized. And there were other features of the estuary that were clearly degraded. So there's a strong motivation to build a partnership among, you know, the various states, various stakeholders in the watershed to try to um, do something about it and kind of reverse the course that Chesapeake Bay was on. Well, and then I guess the next obvious question is, um, has that course been reversed or, or has the situation been worsening? What's, what's been happening over the last however many years? Um, well, it's, it's hard to answer that without telling a lot of different stories, um, but I'll try to digest it down um, to a couple. So, you know, the, when we're talking about hypoxia today and the forecast especially, we're talking about this big volume that is out in the main body of Chesapeake Bay, the deepest part of Chesapeake Bay. Um, but there's also low oxygen conditions that develop up in sort of some of the shallow tributaries of Chesapeake Bay. So there's sort of hypoxic problems sort of littered all over Chesapeake Bay. And we have this bias where we really tend to focus on the volume that sort of develops in the warm months and then goes away in the winter that's in the main stem. Um, but that volume, you know, from what we know about it, um, we have data, reasonable data that go back to about 1950. And it, it was clear that uh, the hypoxic volume in Chesapeake Bay um, starting around the 70s, started going up, um, and it sort of stayed up um, since then. And, you know, if you sort of look at the whole picture. But in any given year, you can have a really big hypoxic volume or a very low hypoxic volume. And it depends, you know, a lot on, you know, sort of how um, the climate has sort of operated in that year. So when you have really high freshwater inputs, you get really high nutrients coming into the bay. So you have a tendency to stimulate more hypoxia. But you also, this river flow that's coming in, because it's fresh and it's less dense than the saltier water in the bay, it tends to stay on the surface. And so when you have more fresh water, you kind of have a separation of the surface and the bottom layer, and there's, n and there's less exchange of oxygen between those layers. And that's important because that oxygen from, you know, the atmosphere and plants that are growing in the, the surface water is really the source of oxygen that could replenish what's in the bottom layer. So high flow has kind of this doubled effect and one that's hard to separate out what the 
real impact is of adding more nutrients to sustain more phytoplankton growth, but also um, sort of reducing the capability for new oxygen to go into the bottom water. Okay, so um, that sounds like a very complex dynamic system. Um, and your article is mainly focused on forecasting. So I'm, I'm wondering how do you forecast, you know, given those, uh, given those conditions and given the complication of the system itself? Yeah, so uh, in some ways it's interesting because the way we forecast at least the seasonal forecast that we described in this paper is somewhat simple. Um, and at the heart of it, we're really building relatively simple statistical relationships between that river flow we just talked about and the nutrients in it and what we expect to happen um, later on that summer. And so there's kind of this lag effect where in years when you have more nutrients and freshwater coming in in kind of the winter spring months, um, those conditions lead to bigger volumes of this low oxygen water in the middle of the summer. So it, it's, it's interesting. It's actually fairly simple the way that we do it. And the, this forecast models have actually kind of evolved over time. You know, I've kind of focused on this river flow effect, but there's also a strong impact of the wind on um, the eventual size of these low oxygen volumes that we realize. And um, the statistical models have sort of over time incorporated tried to incorporate the effects of winds. Um, and in the most recent versions of them, we've sort of taken that out and just focused on sort of the main driver that we can characterize. Okay. So it sounds like, you know, you get, you may get the best statistical bang for the buck by just looking at the, um, the river flows, but, but what effect practically speaking, do the, does the wind have, um, if not on the forecast, but on the phenomena itself? Yeah, well, it, it impacts both. Um, so with a forecast, you know, the key thing here is that we're, we are forecasting. So we're kind of restricted to conditions that are happening in the springtime period to make our forecast. And so it's difficult to characterize what the wind's going to be like in the summer in the, in the winter. And that's important because the effects of wind are a bit more immediate than the effects of flow. <clears throat> and so wind can, you know, wind, ha there's a complicated impact of, of what wind does to hypoxia and there's some very sort of strong responses and then there's some more subtle responses and so we've actually in our paper when we looked at how well the forecast did it actually turned out that the years where the forecast did the worst were in years where there's really strong summer winds um, and so when you get really strong winds especially winds that come from the south they just physically mix the water and often these strong winds are associated with the passing of tropical storms um, that happen to come in the middle of the summer. And so you have this really strong effect of wind um, just mixing up the water and kind of breaking down that layer separation that I talked about that is associated with the river flow so you can get oxygen replenishing the bottom water. Um, but there's also an effect where you know, the direction of the wind actually is important because the direction of the wind can sort of change the way the water circulates. And depending on the way the water circulating, it can either be replenished by oxygen from the atmosphere, or it can be sort of stuck in the bottom and kind of grow bigger volumes. So there's a number of ways in which wind can affect this problem. Okay. So what's the value of, of these forecasts? You know, how are they used? Uh, obviously, you know, it's interesting from a scientific perspective, if you can predict low oxygen conditions in the bay. Um, 
But are these used in any kind of management scenario? Yeah, it's interesting. We In the paper, we actually spent some time thinking about this and writing about it um, because it was part of our reflection on this forecasting process to try to understand, you know, what impact it did and what was the real value of these forecasts. So I think what we what we concluded at the end of that is that one of the real values of at least the seasonal forecasts that we do is that they they kind of reintroduce, if you will, this problem um, to sort of the broader community of people living in the Bay watershed um, at a regular time every year. And so when we do these forecasts, there's usually a press release both by um, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, who has su supported some of this work, um, and among our own institutions. So we sort of get the word out about the forecasts and what we expect. And that is sort of followed by some updates from some of the resource agencies within Maryland. And, and there, we actually get a lot of activity both on the website that describes the forecast. We have a website um, that describes sort of what we expect from the forecast and um, goes through some of the science behind it. And we really think that that's one of the most valuable things because if you think about what we do with these forecasts, you know, sometime in May or very early June, we're projecting what's going to happen for the rest of the summer. But we're not proje projecting it in this, like, space-specific sense where if you were a fisherman and you wanted to know where not to fish, you couldn't use what we're projecting and go to a point in the map and say, don't go there. We're kind of, you know, pointing out sort of the general size throughout the whole of Chesapeake Bay. And so... Um, it's, it's not necessarily useful for somebody on the ground at a given moment at a given place. And because Chesapeake Bay has a more complex model um, to kind of do scenarios that guide their management activities, um, there's no real need for this sort of seasonal forecast to guide that activity. Um, but that's different for places like the Gulf of Mexico that use forecasts similar to the ones that we do um, to have a more active role in the management there. And, and what do they do in the, in the Gulf of Mexico then um, in order to kind of uh, respond to these forecasts? And what type of actions is, are done there? Is that like uh, affecting, you know, uh, fish take rates and that kind of thing? Or, or how does that work? I think the primary way they're using in the Gulf of Mexico is trying to understand what kind of nutrient reductions they need to achieve to get a level of hypoxic volume that's tolerable. And unlike the Chesapeake, where we, we do actually a series of three forecasts, you know, one that talks about, or one that predicts kind of the midsummer sort of low oxygen condition. And then we predict two other times of year where we're predicting the very low oxygen zones, which we call anoxia, which are effectively zero oxygen, where hypoxia at least includes some oxygen. So we have sort of one forecast for one period. Where in the Gulf, they have an ensemble, what they call an ensemble of models um, that are all predicting the same thing that they can use to sort of understand some of the uncertainty around these kind of forecasts. Okay, and so you mentioned anoxia. Um, what happens to the, the wildlife in those types of areas when that occurs? You know, are they all able to kind of uh, exit the area and move to places with more oxygen, or uh, do you have fish kills and things like that? Well, in the main part of Chesapeake Bay... <laughs> There's, I don't think there's really fish kills predominantly. Um, 
most of the fish can get out before they really get into too much trouble. <clears throat> the organisms that live at the bottom, sort of there's worms and other benthic organisms. Benthic, what I mean by that is in the sediment. Um, they're not as mobile, so they can sort of get trapped and sort of pass. But, but most of the fish and crabs are pretty good at getting out of there. Um, one of the phenomena that you see, well, has been observed in Chesapeake Bay, but it's pretty rare, um, is something that has been called a jubilee in other parts of the world. And that's where these winds, the direction of the winds that change the circulation, um, some winds can push water, the deep water that's um, really low oxygen, up into some of the shallower flanks that are along the shoreline. And if that happens and all of the fish and crabs are running away from that water, if it pushes them up too close to shore in really shallow water, you get this huge concentration of all these fish and crabs and there's a lot of activity and of course the birds catch on and they come in and they're trying to feed. And so that kind of activity can lead to some mortality, um, at least indirectly. Um, but that's kind of the most acute effects that you see kind of in the main part of Chesapeake Bay. Oh, that's an interesting phenomenon. And now I guess I'm going to ask the question that uh, comes up in various ways in pretty much every single one of these podcasts, uh, which is the climate change question. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what effects climate change will either have on, um, you know, both the phenomenon of, of hypoxia itself and also your forecasts thereof. Uh, how does climate change play into all of this? Yeah, I think like everything, it potentially can play a, a really big role. And you know, some of the the other modeling work we're trying to do is trying to is aimed at addressing that problem. So most people that have thought about this and published about it have come to the conclusion that climate change really means um, bigger hypoxic zones. So it's only going to make the problem worse. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, the, f the first reason is that when we think of climate change, the first thing we think of is that temperature is going to go up. And when the air temperature goes up, the water temperature follows suit. And it just turns out that the amount of oxygen that water can hold um, goes down when temperature goes up. So with increasing temperatures, just the solubility, the ability of the water to hold oxygen is going to go down. And so that's going to sort of make the system more vulnerable to getting low oxygen conditions. Um, as we, in, in this region at least, the projections usually predict more precipitation, at least in certain times of the year. And so with more precipitation, you'll have more river flow. And so with more river flow into these estuaries, you'll be delivering more nutrients and you'll also be setting up this layering that restricts um, oxygen getting to the bottom layer. So there's this thinking that, you know, those two things combined will lead to more hypoxia. But if a warmer world is, say, a stormier world, then maybe more of these big events come through that mix the water column and actually reduce hypoxia. Or it may be even more subtle of that, where um, if you get warmer winters and warmer springs, all that material that the dead phytoplankton generate is just burned up faster because all these um, microbial rates are sensitive to temperature. And so if they burn up faster, maybe the hypoxic zones are bigger in the early part of the summer and they just sort of run out of organic material by the end of the summer and perhaps the volumes go down. So there could even be sort of a within the year effect. 
Okay, so that sounds like there's a heck of a lot to um, to predict and try to understand, and that it could make forecasting more of a challenge in the future. Most definitely. Okay, so you know, one last thing I wanted to touch on um, was you know, kind of the future directions for this research and uh, what kind of things you're going to be looking at. And whether that be, uh, you know, the direction of your own research or whether that be the direction of the Bay um, or this area of study in general. So I hope you could just tell us a little bit that will kind of give us a view to the future. Sure. Um, yeah, my, I've been thinking about a lot of things along this line of research. And there's actually a, a handful of exciting things that we're doing sort of in the next few years. And so the first is that, you know, to get back to your question concerning, you know, has hypoxic volume, has hypoxia gotten worse or better in the Chesapeake? You know, I, I sort of spoke about this, you know, the past several decades and how there's been this trajectory of more hypoxic volumes. Um, but in Chesapeake Bay broadly, um, there's been some signs that, you know, the overall sort of water quality has been getting somewhat better in the last handful of years. And certainly, in the later part of the summer, um, there's been some indication that the volume of anoxia, the truly low oxygen, has actually been going down. And so that's consistent um, with some reductions in nutrient loading that have been happening in the winter-spring, um, primarily in, in some respects to the Clean Air Act because um, when, the when the power plants in the Midwest were cleaned up, um, they would produce nitrogen, and that would fall in the watershed and get into the estuary. That's been cut off substantially, and we've seen some reductions in the nitrogen loading associated with that. So we want to try to understand, now that we think we might be in a place where um, these hypoxic volumes might be on a path to getting smaller, trying to understand really what the controls on that are. So... The other two avenues, you know, the first is really trying to understand the seasonality of the hypoxic volume. You know, we know that it starts in the late spring, develops over the summer, and sort of goes away in the fall. But as we've looked at this now over 30 years of data, we can see some subtleties in the seasonality of that volume that may be associated with changes in climate. They may be associated with changes in how much and when nutrients are coming into the system. So we're using some modeling tools to look at scenarios of how changes in the timing and the magnitude and the conditions of the water can affect the, the timing of when you get sort of big or small hypoxic volumes. And the last one is related to another problem in coastal waters, which is loosely called, or maybe firmly called, ocean acidification. And it turns out that you know, the, the same processes that, you know, create hypoxic zones and then the hypoxic zones themselves and the chemical reactions that happen within them um, interact with um, what, what we call sort of the carbonate system, the inorganic carbon system. And there's interesting questions looking to the future about how sort of the acidification of the ocean associated with higher carbon dioxide will interact with all the related processes that happen in estuaries associated with these nutrients that come off the land and the hypoxic zones that develop. So trying to unravel all those complex interactions are one of the things we're looking to do in the future. All right, and we'll look forward to reading that research, I hope, in bioscience. Uh, Dr. Testa, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.